entering the Freedom Hut. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo says Democrats are trying to intimidate State Department employees in their quest to impeach Trump. We've got that, plus the left's efforts to undermine the legitimate Attorney General Barr investigation of Russia collusion origins. And a federal judge decides that Harvard can, in fact, discriminate against Asian Americans. We'll get into that and much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. As for what's on the phone call, I was on the phone call. Uh, the phone call was in the context of now, I guess I've been the Secretary of State for uh, coming on a year and a half. Um, I know precisely what the American policy is with respect to Ukraine. It's been remarkably consistent, uh, and we will continue to try to drive those set of outcomes. It's what our team, including, including Ambassador Volker, were focused on, was taking down um, the threat that Russia poses there in Ukraine. It was about helping the Ukrainians to uh, get graft out and corruption outside of their government and to help now this new government in the Ukraine build a successful, thriving economy. It's what the State Department officials that I had uh, the privilege to lead have been engaged in, and it's what we will continue to do uh, even while all this noise is going on. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Secretary of State Pompeo was on the phone call. He was on the phone call with uh, with Trump and the President uh, Zelensky of Ukraine. And now the Democrats are honing in on him, targeting him and State Department employees in general. Anybody who might have any knowledge of what may or may not have gone on around that phone call, on the phone call. We already have the transcript. You have Adam Schiff, the slimiest and most dishonest of congressmen who's out there telling people that Pompeo is a fact witness. But how could he be a fact witness to a phone call that is already a matter of fact because we have the transcript of it? We know what was said. So are they really hoping to get the Secretary of State to testify about whether or not he gave certain counsel to the president before or after that call? Well, that would be executive privilege, of course. But they won't care about any of that. What you see in this early stage of the impeachment process, and I think we should start referring to it as that, they say impeachment inquiry as though they're working through this and are just trying to get the facts, trying to get answers here. They're, they're not decided yet on whether they're going to go forward with an actual impeachment of the president. I'm telling you that they are. Uh, I think the vote is going to happen. I think it's likely to happen, in fact, um, before the end of the year. They want to do this. They want to mar the president. They want to put a, a strike against him on the record. And even if it's clear to anybody who isn't approaching this like a wild-eyed partisan that that's just nonsense, it will still be something that goes into the history books. He was impeached, just like Bill Clinton, uh, and not removed from office. So now they're looking for ways to add some meat to the bones of their impeachment process early on. 
And they're going after Pompeo, who has said as secretary of state that there's not going to just be a free for all of anybody who had ever worked for the State Department has to go in and testify in front of Congress about this issue without the White House able to look and see, well, what are they testifying about? Is this involving conversations with the president? Because there's privilege here. These are co-equal branches of government. The Democrat majority in the House seems to think that they have an unlimited right to request any information they want. In fact, there was a report that Adam Schiff on a phone call said it's going to be a real heck of a fight to get access to transcripts, other transcripts of the president's phone calls with world leaders. My friends, they're trying to destroy all the processes around the president that allows him, that would allow any president to conduct business without knowing that everything that's going on is going to eventually be out in public. I mean, there's a reason for executive privilege. There's a reason that we have these protections for the president to be able to speak to advisors. Democrats reject all of it because Trump, because orange man, bad. That's what they tell us. Uh, Some of them actually say that, but others just allude to it on a regular basis. So now we are already at the phase where anything that the White House does that objects to the Democrats plans here, any movement that the Democrats or any movement rather the White House makes that stands in the way of the efforts of uh, Schiff and company to create this narrative of a rogue, illegal, criminal, corrupt president. That itself will be evidence of corruption. You notice that this is what they do time and again. This is what they did to Kavanaugh. This is what they've always done to Trump. They did it during the Mueller probe. Your objection to their plans to destroy you is in and of itself unacceptable and further evidence that you should be destroyed. You're fighting back against the thing they wish to do to you is all the proof they need that they have every right to do it to you. You want an example? Here's the Associated Press today. Setting a defiant tone, the Trump administration resisted Congress's access to impeachment witnesses Tuesday, even as House Democrats warned such efforts themselves could amount to an impeachable offense. Isn't that just so, so perfect? Do what we say as we're trying to impeach you or we're going to impeach you for not doing exactly what we say. You don't have any rights as the head of the executive branch, as a co-equal branch of government. You do what what Adam Schiff says or else. Now, this is going to be quite the confrontation. This is going to get much nastier. There's no question about that. Uh, But as we now see with uh, with Pompeo and the way that he's described in the press, they're also trying very hard. There, there are two figures around Trump that they want to take down. They want to discredit them. And they're the two people that I have the most confidence in around Trump in the entire administration. Attorney General Barr, and we'll get to that in a moment, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. They're also hoping to go on a fishing expedition. I can tell you that much by looking into everybody in the State Department who may have had any, uh, any contact or any information regarding any of this, and they will be given their opportunity by the Democrats to be part of the soft coup against Trump. This is really from Congress, from, from Schiff and the Democrats, an open call for any deep state elements, current or former in the State Department, to come forward and have their moment of Trump bashing. 
Become a hero to the resistance. Probably get yourself a sweet post in the next Democrat presidential administration. This is why when they tell us that the whistleblower's life is under threat. No, that's just nonsense. No more so than anyone else who's engaging in the political discussion right now and, and making a case one way or the other, uh, one way or the other um, that the president is unfit for office or fit for office. You can come under fire from, from either side of this. But you have, uh, that's right, House Chairman Adam Schiff of the Intelligence Committee, Elliot Engel of the Foreign Affairs Committee, and Elijah Cummings of the House Oversight Committee uh, saying that you you let anyone in the State Department, you, you better say that they come talk to us and speak about anything or else. And Secretary of State Pompeo is saying, hold on a second, it's not going to be that simple. So now they're trying to make him into the villain. They're trying so hard, in fact, that there was this piece, this is classic, from uh, Washington Post um, reporter, Phil Bump. And he talks about how, sure... Pompeo didn't lie exactly, but he gave a master class. Here you go. This is the, the piece. Pompeo didn't technically say anything untrue, but he still misled the public, according to Philip Bump, another one of the collusion conspiracy theorists here. Uh, I mean, the Russia collusion conspiracy theorists. Now we've moved on to Ukraine collusion. And we find ourselves being told that the president of the United States once again, has transgressed so far that the only option is impeachment in an election year, no less. If they respected our institutions, if they respected the will of the American people, wouldn't they just say, all right, we're going to make a really compelling case to the voters that Donald Trump should not be president for four more years? Why is that so complicated? Why is that so impossible for them? No, instead, we know what they do. They stretch the law beyond recognition and they try to fit into this new construct, illegal activity that's not illegal, and it's laughable when you ask them, what would this mean for other people, not Trump? Would this law really work going forward for other politicians? Is this the standard you would judge other people by? Ask them, what is illegal about the Ukraine phone call? Oh, well. There's nothing illegal about it. They tried for a moment the campaign finance issue, which I told you was a, was a joke and would not last. And then beyond that, all right, well, it's just unbecoming. It's, it's not right for a president to do, they say. Asking a foreign leader to investigate a political rival. Well, I'm here to say, well, if it's based on alleged wrongdoing that would be a violation of law, that would be corruption in and of itself, it's absolutely correct. See, I don't take the position that many Republicans and conservatives these days have that, well, you know, it was bad and Trump, you know. No. Trump fights fire with fire. He knows what the other side has done to him. He understands what they're trying to do now with this impeachment nonsense. And ultimately, I think we have to understand that we are not dealing with an opposition to Trump that acts in good faith or has any interest whatsoever in respecting the very institutions that they have weaponized against this president, including the State Department, which is full of hysterical, shrill, anti-Trump loons, current and past. So they want to try to get people under oath to say, oh, what Trump was doing here was terrible. What he was doing there was terrible. They're using Congress as an opposition tool. They're not using Congress for oversight. This isn't about what's legal. It's not about presidential authority. It's going after 
the two most, in my opinion, competent members, or I should say effective members of Trump's cabinet, Pompeo and Barr. They're going to try to get people who worked in the State Department, not even when Pompeo was the Secretary of State, to turn around and say that Trump has sold our foreign policy. He's done terrible things. Doesn't matter if it's any allegation of actual wrongdoing, whether criminal or just ethical. It'll be an opportunity to bash the president of the United States. That's what they're looking for. And this White House knows that they're going to have to fight back. Get ready for things to really get crazy, folks. The resistance is back in full force. They don't care that the country's doing well. We're not fighting any unnecessary war, uh, or at least not taking major casualties in any overseas conflicts on a daily basis. The economy is very strong. The economy is so strong, people wonder if it could even continue this way. Did you ever feel that way under the Obama administration? The economy is so good, I wonder if it could stay like this. No, you wondered, I hope that the next guy who comes in does a better job. But that's not going to be the focus. The focus is this, rewriting laws in real time to take down the president of the United States because the libs still cannot accept that Hillary Clinton was duly and rightly defeated in 2016. They have not moved past it. I would argue they haven't moved past that Bush beat Gore in 2000, but that's a conversation for another day. Well, I think the whole thing that the attorney general is involved in is, is highly unusual. Um, ordering an investigation of uh, our intelligence and law enforcement agencies when there was already an investigation underway by the inspector general. Um, so I think that's a kind of a threshold matter. And then to see how the president is now involved in trying to help the attorney general in that effort um, gives me pause. Um, I think the attorney general needs to be a little more sensitive to the appearance that that gives. Um. Undermining the attorney general before he's even done anything in this investigation. Barr, of course, that was Obama's uh, former attorney general, Eric Holder. He of uh, making sure that Mark Rich's pardon was signed in the last hours of the Clinton administration because his wife was a big Democrat donor. That that Eric Holder even today would say that that was gross and unseemly and he shouldn't have done it. But he did it, folks. He was the one who got that. So he's Mr. Ethics. Yeah, let's just let's sell a pardon. That's what they did. The Democratic Party under the Clinton administration in the last hours sold effectively, a pardon to a guy who was a a fugitive felony financier because his wife gave a lot of money to Democrats back here in the States. Gee. Oh, but they're going to lecture. Oh, I'm sorry. The party of Bill and Hillary Clinton. They're going to tell us what has the appearance of impropriety. They're really going to pull this now. I mean, the gall that they have. It's stunning. After all we've been put through as a country with the Russia collusion nonsense, look back at the timeline of that. Oh, there was there was no investigation. No one was investigating the Trump campaign. Oh, it turns out they were. Yeah, they were. And and in fact, they they were spying. Oh, no, you, you can't say that. That's that's not allowed. Well, what do you call FISA warrants on an American citizen who broke no laws and no charges were brought against of any kind whatsoever? Because he's tied to a political campaign. That sounds a lot like spying. The Democrats who spied on the Trump campaign are now out there telling us that the president of the United States isn't allowed to have a conversation about corruption involving the previous administration. I'm sorry. That's not acceptable. 
Notice the power of narrative here, though. If you were just a casual reader of a newspaper, if you're somebody that just spent time flipping on CNN, God forbid, and seeing what they say, you'd think to yourself, wow, the president investigating it. It all gets boiled down to this, investigating a political opponent. I'm here to say there's nothing wrong with the president asking for an investigation of wrongdoing in a foreign country just because it involves a political opponent. There was nothing unethical in what the president said. The next day, Zelensky of Ukraine could have called him back and said, you know what, I've really, I've really talked to all my guys. We've been through this. There's just nothing there. If at that point the president says, all right, well, you know, you've done your investigation, but I'm going to need you, wink, wink, to throw this, you know, to throw the book at this guy. All right, then we've got a problem. Then there's something we need to discuss. I need you to look into this. I need the facts. Why are the facts so dangerous? Why are the facts such a problem for Democrats? That's all the president was talking about on that phone call. He wasn't tipping the scales of justice. He was just asking that justice be done. Now, Democrats can laugh about that and say, oh, it's Trump. That's never the case. Yeah, well, guess what? We didn't think it was the case with Hillary. We didn't think it was the case with the special counsel. We've seen the two-tiered system of justice for Democrats and Republicans in action over and over. And we are going to stop pretending that it's okay because it's simply not. This is why now they've, they've gone after Pompeo because they're looking for more people from within the State Department to be additional whistleblowers of one kind or another. It's an open call for a deep state coup. Now they're going to go after Barr. And there's some very important reasons for that. I'll get to it after the break. We are deeply concerned about uh, Secretary Pompeo's effort now to uh, potentially interfere with witnesses who, whose testimony is needed before our committee many of whom are mentioned in the whistleblower complaint. Um, and we want to make it abundantly clear that any effort by the secretary, by the president or anyone else to interfere with the Congress's ability to call before it relevant witnesses will be considered as evidence of obstruction of the lawful functions of Congress. Uh, and more than that, will allow a, an adverse inference to be drawn as to the underlying facts, uh, that if they are going to prevent witnesses from coming forward to testify on the allegations in the whistleblower complaint, um, that will create an adverse uh, inference that uh, those allegations are in fact correct. Do you see what the slimy shift just did there? See what see what he he managed to to all just slip into the slip into the little soundbite. Do what we say. Don't don't even try to exert any competing goals or good any competing interest when the Democrats in the Congress are requesting that people from the State Department or people involved in the phone call or whomever, they say they must testify. And if, in fact, you do object to this, not only is that obstruction, but we're just going to say that that means you're guilty of whatever it is we say it is. So if you mount a defense, if the administration, and this is very important that we all get this in our heads right now, the administration's defense against the soft coup led by the Democrat House is going to be viewed by the left and by the media, going to be told to us, rammed into our skulls with an endless talking points salvo that the very fighting against this thing is proof that they're telling the truth and that Trump is guilty and corruption, obstruction, impeachment, remove him from the House. 
Wow, that's that's really so convenient, isn't it? You get to make an allegation, you get to bring a process against someone, and the moment that they object to your efforts to destroy them, that is alone further evidence that you should be destroyed. This is a this is a very it's Soviet. This is what the Soviets did. This is the way that uh, Soviet show trials would work when you would stand up and want to testify in your defense if they'd even let you. The very fact that you would not admit your crimes just proved how bad you were and how evil your crimes had been. I'm not making this up. This is the way it used to go. And this is what the uh, Democrats right now are trying to accomplish with their impeachment process. Uh, They also want an all hands on deck effort from the deep staters, particularly in the State Department. I mean, that's if you were look if you were asking me, Buck, and I worked with many State Department people, I know a lot of them very well. If you were asking me what is the single greatest concentration of radical leftists in the federal government, and I mean by number, not by percentage, because if you look at the uh, if you know if you look at the Department of Education, you look at the you know well okay if we're just doing it by numbers, probably the Department of Education actually. If we're just going to do it based on sheer volume, I would say Department of Education might be top of the list. You got a few others that would be pretty high. Oh, Department uh, Environmental Protection. A lot of far left ideologues have burrowed deep in there. But if you're looking at people that have a fair amount of power over government policy and are considered a little more elite within the federal government hierarchy, the deep state motherlode is the State Department. It's just the truth. It's the State Department. And that's why you have Adam Schiff running around now saying that the president is is uh, it's terrible that he says anyone who comes out is, is a traitor from these places or doing bad things, because the very point here that he's going for is that the uh, opportunity for the deep state to come forward and have the, the final push to throw Trump out of office or, or really more realistically just to mar his presidency so that he will not win re-election. Schiff is putting out the, the uh, left-wing resistance bat signal to everybody in the State Department. And he doesn't like Trump saying, hey, don't do this. Play 23. The president wants to make this all about the whistleblower and suggest people that come forward with evidence of his wrongdoing are somehow treasonous. Uh, and should be treated as traitors and spies. Um, This is a blatant effort to intimidate witnesses. Uh, It's an incitement to violence. Um, And I would hope, and we're starting to see members of both parties speaking out against attacking this whistleblower or others that have pertinent information. Um, So the other thing I want to underscore, though, is um, what the whistleblower has set out that is within our power to this date to confirm, we see confirmed in that call record. The president can attack the whistleblower rhetorically all the president wants. It doesn't change the fact that the record of that call shows the president of the United States in a same conversation, indeed immediately after the Ukraine president asked for more military help, the president of the United States asked that leader a favor a favor to look into the origins of the Russia collusion investigation in 2016. That's what CrowdStrike was about. CrowdStrike has nothing to do with Hunter Biden. Later on, he brought up 
looking into corruption in Ukraine and whether or not Joe Biden stopped a prosecutor in Ukraine from doing his job. If Joe Biden, this is what the Democrats do not want you to pay attention to. If what Joe Biden did is corrupt, if he did it with corrupt intent, if that was an abuse of power, then we have a right to know. And it is a lawful and legitimate and necessary function of the current government under the current administration to find out if that is the case. That it will upset Democrats is immaterial. That it doesn't look good for Biden is not relevant. But this all turns into who can win the propaganda fight in public? Who can convince enough people? Well, you're not allowed to do this, see, because Democrats say so. What is the law? What is the statute that the president violated here? And in fact, a better one is what is the quid pro quo? They're going to say there's an implied quid pro quo. Well, you could say that about absolutely anything. Implied quid pro quo. This is absurd. It either is or it isn't. Democrats, of course, don't look at things in that in that context. They think that this is their moment to finally get back at Trump and to set all things right in this country by putting a Democrat in office. Pelosi is running around talking about how this is similar to the American Revolution, Blay 18. And as you've heard me say over and over again, in the dark days of the revolution, Thomas Paine said, the times have found us. We think the times have found us now. Not that we place ourselves in a category of greatness of our founders, but we do place ourselves in a time of urgency on the threat to the Constitution, a system of checks and balances. Uh, that is uh, being made. Uh, it is, um, they fought for our independence. They declared independence. They fought and won. They established a democracy. Thank God they made the Constitution amendable so we could always ever be expanding freedom. Not a democracy. I know, I usually say don't, don't do that, but I just can't. I can't take it with these people anymore. It's a republic. It's not a democracy. We have democratic mechanisms, but we have a republic as our government, as our form of government. Uh, Pelosi here is just, it's just all nonsense for the base. I mean, no one really thinks that she really believes this stuff. And I would just ask you to apply logic and reason to the circumstance. Borrow from my buddy, William of Ockham, the Franciscan friar and scholar philosopher from 14th century England. You mean the razor guy, Buck, don't you? Yes, indeed, I do. Ockham's razor. You're no doubt wondering, fuck, why are you bringing that up right now? Well, um, he has his concept of Occam's razor, which is also called the law of parsimony, which is a heuristic. This is not a, an ironclad rule, and there's a degree of subjectivity in the application of Occam's razor. But it's just a good, it's a good uh, a rule of thumb, which is, a, I guess, another heuristic. Uh, Plurality must never be posited without necessity, Occam once said, or wrote. I don't think, I don't think we have any recordings from the, uh, the early 1300s, but that was what he wrote down. And all Occam's razor means is that you must slice away unnecessary assumptions in an argument and other things being equal favor the simplest form, right? The simple explanation is usually the right one, which now takes us to the present moment. What happens when you apply Occam's razor to the frenzy over impeaching Donald Trump right now? 
First, we have to start with Speaker Pelosi and the Democrat theory of the case, so to speak, that President Donald Trump has once again and right at the perfect time, at least perfect time for Democrats, make it uh, central to the 2020 election. Right at that perfect moment, Trump has committed yet another impeachable offense. That's right. We are to believe that after three years of claims that Trump has broken the law or engaged in high crimes and misdemeanors mentioned but not described in the Constitution, Trump has finally gone too far. Remember, the Democrats didn't manage to make it across that impeachment process finish line on, well, let's see here, uh, Russia collusion, the emoluments clause. Oh, my gosh, foreign diplomats were having cheeseburgers at Trump hotels. Mueller's obstruction of justice list or the Stormy Daniels hush money campaign finance violation. None of that was impeachable enough for Democrats to announce the start of an official impeachment process. But oh my, look at this now, just in time, they've got Trump because of this call between our president and President Zelensky of Ukraine. The whistleblower has come forward apparently from inside the intelligence community to deliver to Nancy Pelosi and company the pretext they needed at exactly the moment they needed it to impeach Trump. So I bring you back to our friend William of Ockham, the Franciscan friar and his metaphorical razor. Which explanation for the start of the current impeachment mania would survive an application of Mr. Ockham's razor? On the one hand, Donald Trump has committed endless offenses against the Constitution and the American people, none of which pushed his opponents to impeach him. But luckily, and at long last, Pelosi and the Democrats have him where they really want him at the most opportune time possible to affect the 2020 election. Uh, of course, they didn't want to drag the country through this, but our democracy is at stake. Or the Democrats have been plotting to do this all along. The whistleblower likely coordinated with Congressman Adam Schiff and probably some other Democrats in the release of this report. And it uh, didn't matter what Trump said on the phone call with Ukraine or what he did in the past year. They were going to find a reason to impeach him because they want to, because they think they need to, and everything else is posturing and lies. Team Buck, I will leave the slicing and dicing to you. On Monday, I issued a subpoena to Rudy Giuliani, again in consultation with Chairman Cummings and Engel. Uh, we expect uh, Mr. Giuliani to comply uh, with the legal process we are using. Uh, he is obviously a key figure in all of this by his own admission, as well as by the allegations in the whistleblower complaint. Uh, today, and just within the last hour, uh, half hour, Chairman Cummings um, noticed uh, a subpoena that will go out later uh, in the, this week or next week uh, after the notice period has expired um, that that committee intends to subpoena documents that the White House has been withholding uh, from Congress. Uh, we are obviously coordinating very closely with Chairman Cummings on that. They're subpoenaing the president's personal lawyer, my friends. They know that basically everything they're going to want to find out from Rudy Giuliani is, is going to be privileged. But what, what have they already established? Why did I go through that whole, oh, the resistance against their efforts at the soft coup is evidence that the soft coup is necessary? The moment that Trump exerts executive privilege or the moment that Rudy Giuliani exerts attorney-client privilege, 
they will say, see, they're hiding stuff. And they know this. There's, there's no way around it. There's no surprise here. But that's why it's so important for them to be out there in the public and feeding to their allies in the media, the people that in the media want to help the Democrats destroy Trump before the next election, which I would note, clearly they have very little faith in this field of Democrats. In the back of their minds, they must recognize that Joe Biden is a clown and that Hunter Biden is a, an enormous liability, especially in a general election, if they were to be able to look into his past without the Democrats running full cover for him in the media. They must understand this. They must know that the likelihood of Donald Trump defeating any of the Democrats arrayed against him right now is far too, far too high for them to be comfortable at this point. So at a minimum, they have to do what they can to tilt the scales in favor of the Democrat. And at best, they would have the destruction of the Trump presidency, forcing him out, having him resign, even if the Senate wouldn't remove him, you know, the Nixon effect. They really want that to be the end, the end state here. It's not going to happen, but that's what they're hoping for. That's what they're pushing for. But you can see how they're lining all of this up. It's so clear. The strategy is so transparent. If we had an honest media, they'd be asking questions of the Democrats like, why is it that this is happening now? Are you going to settle in and focus on just this for the impeachment or are you going to bring in all these other areas? And if all those other things were impeachable, then why are you doing this now and why didn't you do it then? And if it's a political question, and this is what the Democrats will have no answer to, because you can impeach someone for effectively anything, right? If, If you have the votes, it's a political mechanism. But if it's a political question and Donald Trump is so detestable at a political level, Why not allow the process to play out with an election? Why try to short circuit the upcoming presidential election by pretending that there is some mandate other than just partisanship to get rid of this president? Well, the answer is they have no respect. The Democrats have no respect for our institutions and all of the stuff they say about our sacred democracy and the need to protect us. It's just all crap. It's just all noise. They hate Trump. They want power. The end. That's it. All the other stuff you're going to hear is just dressing it up with flowery language and process and Nancy Pelosi talking about the founders like she could even name more than three of them. So you're not you're not suggesting, though, that spying occurred. I don't. uh, Well, uh, I guess you could. I, I think there was a spying did occur. Yes, I think spying did occur. They flipped out. You remember that? That was Attorney General uh, William Barr. Remember, he's been Attorney General in the past, folks. He was Office of Legal Counsel at the DOJ. This guy really knows the law, but also really knows the game. He understands what's going on. He, I wish, I wish he had been the Attorney General from the start of Trump's administration. One of the biggest mistakes, and I, there are areas where the president must be criticized because he must learn, especially if he's going to be around for four more years in office. The people that he picked in the early stages were terrible for a lot of jobs. It's just true. It's just true. And he admits it now, by the way. I love it when I say that and people say, why are you turning your back on the president? Uh, Even Trump says that he made terrible choices. All right. The Mooch was a terrible choice. Omarosa was a terrible choice. He's got on the list. There's a lot of them these people in senior roles in the White House, stunningly bad judgments. The president knows that. Look, he's new to politics. He didn't understand what he was getting into in that regard. And personnel in a company is very different from personnel 
in government at the White House, at the top level of government. But Attorney General Barr, I believe if he had been the president's uh, attorney general before Russia collusion madness got going, before the Mueller probe, there never would have been a Mueller probe. Because one thing that they just skip over in the whole history of how we got to where we are right now is that there was never a need for a special counsel. The only need for a special counsel would have been if you had agreed that there was a crime that had been committed. There was no predicate crime. And if the predicate crime was merely the involvement, the interference in the 2016 election, well, the Department of Justice is fully capable of handling that. The Department of Justice should just handle that on its own. You only create a special counsel because there's a conflict of interest. And the only way you have a conflict of interest is based upon a crime committed by the president himself and his or, or his campaign on his behalf with Russia collusion. But they never established what the crime was because there was no such thing as Russia collusion as a crime. Conspiracy? They never had the basis of a conspiracy to run with. They didn't have the evidence uh, the evidence necessary to even get an investigation going, but they went with it anyway. Why? How? Well, because they hate Trump and through narrative creation. They told a story and enough people bought it that they were able to get away with the rest of it. That is what happened here. But let's not forget that there never should have been a special counsel in the first place. And if you had had a different attorney general, I think that you would have had a different outcome there. Why are they so intent on going after Barr? Well, there's a very good reason for that. They're trying to get ahead of whatever findings there are from the origins of the Russia collusion investigation. Here's a question that nobody in, the, in, our, in our intrepid left-wing mainstream media ever asks. Why didn't they look at what happened right before Operation Crossfire Hurricane? Why was Mueller so disinterested, entirely uninterested, I should say, not disinterested, uninterested in finding out anything about the dossier? Why did the dossier appear so infrequently in that anti-Trump screed that was published as the Mueller report? Shouldn't we know? Shouldn't we understand the basis of the entire investigation? I mean, the, the founding moment, if you will, of the Russia collusion narrative is really the dossier and the conversations with Papadopoulos involving an Australian diplomat, Downer, uh, in reference to what Downer says, Joseph Mifsud told him, told Papadopoulos. So you have a hearsay conversation. Oh, it's almost like the whistleblower thing. A hearsay conversation, uh, you know, where, where a guy talks to somebody and then that gets relayed to somebody else. And then all of a sudden the FBI is rolling around saying, hold on a second. Papadopoulos said what, or Mifsud said what to Papadopoulos, who said what to Downer, who said what to us, and it was all nonsense. It was all a fraud. How is it possible that Mueller didn't look into any of that or didn't want to look into any of that? Well, we know that it was a get Trump operation. It wasn't a get the truth operation. Ah, but the attorney general right now is doing some stuff to set that right. He's going overseas. He's meeting with foreign counterparts, talking to the Italians, talking to the Australians. He wants to know exactly what happened here. Because here's what may have happened, and this is what would be the, the thermonuclear moment for Democrats and their political aspirations for 2020. 
What if instead of finding, they believed that they were going to find Russia collusion with the Trump campaign, at least some of them did, as crazy as that sounds. They probably are also smart enough to know that while that was a stretch and they were just fishing, they were hoping to get really lucky because Russia collusion for Trump never made any sense. It wasn't a good plan, as I was saying from the very beginning. Far too much risk with with far little, uh, far too little upside. You're going to work with the Russians and then the Russians will own you even if you are the president. You're going to leave behind a trail that would not be hard to find. All it takes is one person, one person in Trump's campaign to defect who was in on what would have been an international conspiracy to throw the election. And then Trump would be finished. But that person never came forward because that person didn't exist because there was no conspiracy. Ah, but what about the other possibility here? Looking at this from the other side of the table, see this from the other end of the chessboard. Democrats definitely used a foreigner, Christopher Steele, and foreign sources for the dossier. And Christopher Steele's sources were mostly Ukraine-based. We know that there were some diplomats under the Obama administration, appointees of the Obama administration in places like Ukraine, who absolutely hated the prospect of a President Trump coming into office. What if the Attorney General currently, Bill Barr, is able to find irrefutable proof that the Democrats did what they could to find, uh, to use foreigners, Ukrainians, Ukrainian government officials, to dig up dirt on Donald Trump. What is the possible, what is the likelihood of that happening? I can't tell you, but what would that mean to their current narrative? It would be a jaw-dropping moment. I think we are going to find out that that is what happened. I don't think that there was no government involvement from the Ukrainians, uh, from anyone in the Ukrainian government passing along information for the dossier. I don't believe the Democrats were so skillful in covering their tracks that we won't find out if that happened. And I also know that there's a lot that I simply can't even allude to right now because I don't know, because the investigative work was not done by Mueller, but it is being done by Durham, U.S. Attorney of Connecticut, who has looked into very high-profile, very politicized cases in the past and is known as a no-nonsense guy who is going to get it done. Now, the libs have a problem here. They're used to people who will back down the moment the full fury of the left-wing media and political apparatus is turned on them. They're used to people that say, okay, it's just not worth it. That's not going to happen with A.G. Barr. And it's not going to happen with U.S. Attorney Durham. They have every right, every uh, legal basis for an investigation of what happened in the 2016 election. What FBI actions were then, what DOJ actions were then. This is only a few years ago. Of course, it's in their purview. In fact, I would argue that it is reckless. It would be reckless for them not to look at this, not to go deeper into this. So. What are Democrats going to do preemptively? Just smear everybody involved in this process. Pretend that anything that comes out of the attorney general's mouth, they already did this with the Mueller report. Oh, he lied about the Mueller report. No, he didn't. But that was their initial go. That was their go-to move. Mueller didn't give them what they wanted. And anybody who came forward and said, not only did Mueller not give them the goods, but it was even less than that because this was never, this was not a crime, not even close, not a close call. Sorry. 
They came forward, the Democrats, the left, and they said, well, that must be because Barr is, what did, what did, what did Nancy Pelosi call him? A rogue attorney general, just doing the president's bidding. Huh. I thought he was a very seasoned lawyer that everybody inside the Beltway and across the country in the legal profession knows is very smart and super respectable. But that all changed the moment the political narrative needed to change. They need to discredit the Barr investigation before it happens because the Barr investigation could be devastating, devastating to the Democrats in advance of 2020. It's not just the left that can pull out an October surprise, my friends. Remember that. And unless they're able to blunt this inspector general report before it even comes out, one looking into the origins of Russia collusion, FISA abuse, you're going to have to see government officials come forward. You're going to have to see Democrats who think that a FISA on Carter Page wasn't an absurd abuse of power. Of course it was an absurd abuse of power. And anyone who says otherwise is an idiot or a liar. But they're going to have to take that position because that's what they did looking for something to take down Trump. That's really their only their only guiding principle here. Does it destroy this presidency? Does it defeat him? A.G. Barr is a fighter, and not just because he came to my going away party in D.C. He's a good man. So at least Trump has him on his side, as well as some other senior people at DOJ. Who will, I want them to get to the truth. I mean, I, I'm not actually somebody who advocates them just doing anything they have to do to slap back at the Democrats. I want to know what happened. But what I will not accept is the Democrat lie that any effort to figure out what happened here is automatically to be disregarded, is automatically to be considered political foul play. It's simply not the case. They can say it as much as they want. They can repeat the talking points. I'm not going to change on this. I'm not going to shift. Barr has to do his job. He has a right to do his job. And Durham, up in Connecticut, they're, they're worried about that one. I can tell you this, from everyone I've talked to at DOJ, Durham don't play. Education, higher education, has got to change. And we have got to make public colleges and universities tuition free. Four years ago, that was a radical idea. Today, 12 states have moved in that direction. Just last week, the state of New Mexico said that for all of their residents, public colleges and universities will be tuition free. NYU, NYU, Columbia and Cornell universities have made tuition free for medical students. We're going to increase Pell Grants, substantially increase Pell Grants and work study programs so that any person in this country who goes to college, public or private, will leave school without being in debt. Someone has to pay for all that. Bernie will say that it's just the billionaires and he'll, he'll claim that this isn't going to affect you, but of course it will. Here's another problem. College is far too expensive. Does anyone think that declaring college free, I mean, if you think it's expensive now, wait until it's free, my friend PJ O'Rourke once said about healthcare. It's true. You're going to then just take away any uh, any sense of financial responsibility for a person that's going to then spend years of their life in addition to high school, which already we have this. Look, let's be honest, it's a socialist public education system in this country. I mean, it is based on socialist principles and it is unfortunately largely indoctrinating kids 
with various statist and socialist ideology, but now we're going to say it and it's going to include college as well. These, these universities, many of them have, have multi-billion dollar endowments. Why have they made so much money? Why is college so expensive? Why is the cost out of control? But uh, the more imminent story we have to discuss here with Bernie Sanders is that he's actually been uh, hospitalized today. And this is where we do take a moment back. And I, I think that this, during the heat of a political battle, can sound from some dis, uh, disingenuous. But I really do mean this. And I think those of you who listen to the show know this. I wish Bernie Sanders a speedy recovery and good health. Uh, he is a man who is trying to do what he thinks is the best for the country. And more importantly, we're all human beings here and we want Bernie to be just fine. Um, but he has been hospitalized for a heart procedure and has had to cancel a whole lot of events. Um, he has had a couple of stents put in. He's 78 years old, folks. He'll be, uh, what, 79 if he were to win the presidency. And I really mean this, and, and I know that this is going to sound like, well, is, is this really the time to have this? He, he's okay. He's recovering. I mean, he's, he's going to be fine, I, I believe. Um, but this is a reminder that when we're talking about the person who's going to be the leader of the free world, their health does matter. Democrats have made this an issue in many other cases. They made Donald Trump's weight, or they tried to make his weight an issue. And this, they think, is only a one-way street. Hillary being carried and essentially on video flopping into the back of a van at the height of the 2016 election was considered not a story that anybody should care about or focus on. But no, it does seem like she was having some uh, very obvious health issues there. And Bernie Sanders, once again, this is this is a reminder that as we age, our bodies break down and things get more difficult and just maintaining some degree of health in your later years becomes a very important task. It takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of time. And ultimately what we see with Bernie Sanders is he's too old for this job. It's not just the number. It's also wear and tear, state of health, state of mind. But he is too old for the job of president. Democrats don't want to hear that right now. They don't ever want to hear that. But it's the case. So while I sit here and I, I do in earnest wish a speedy recovery to Mr. Bernie Sanders, senator from Vermont, uh, I also am reminded that the standard that we have been led to believe that exists is that the health of a candidate is uh, that's is an area where we can inquire and we can debate and that can be disqualifying. They certainly said it about Dick Cheney. I mean, they said horrible things also. I mean, very prominent lib journos were openly wishing for Dick Cheney to have another coronary event. I mean, the stuff they said about Cheney was disgusting. Almost as disgusting as the stuff that was said about Sarah Palin by prominent journalists. Um, but Bernie Sanders is too old, folks. What does this mean for the election? Um, I think it means you're going to see a candidate Elizabeth Warren is what I think. Um, I think she's going to, because if Bernie voters are going to go anywhere, they're going to stick with him, but Bernie's not going to pick up any additional support. And as this field gets whittled down, if anyone's going to start to pick up votes between Bernie and Warren, I think it's going to have to be Warren, which is a pretty stunning state of affairs. You will have, let's just be, uh, let's just put it out there, a billionaire, playboy, reality TV show host, real estate developer incumbent against Harvard University's first fake Native American law professor slash... Senator from Massachusetts. 
Hmm. It's quite a contest. If you were writing the screenplay for this, I think people would wonder if, in fact, that was realistic enough, if, if they could expect that anybody would believe watching this on the big screen, this is what's happening. But this is where I think we are heading. I also believe that Democrats, and not to get back into the Ukraine stuff, we've talked about that a lot today, but I think Biden's got problems. I think the more that people look into this, Democrats are going to realize there's a reason that Biden was a a 1% vote guy back in 2008. He was a 1% of the electorate guy, if that, maybe a 0%. He was up there with crazy Kucinich. I've got good news and bad news for you, team. Let's start with the bad news. The bad news is that a federal judge who I read some segments of the uh, of the opinion, a federal judge has rejected the claim that Harvard University intentionally discriminates against Asian American applicants. And we'll get into the why in a moment. And this goes to the the core of the whole debate, the whole argument. But the good news is that this makes it likely that this will be taken all the way up to the Supreme Court and that there will not just be a Supreme Court decision that I hope will be at least 5-4, if not, it probably would be a 5-4, outlawing race-conscious admissions because it is discrimination. It is discrimination by race. They can try to redefine it, change the words, change the terms. Affirmative action is discrimination on the basis of race as long as some other, uh, as well as some other um, immutable characteristics. There's also affirmative action based on gender and gender identity and, you know, national origin and other things. But the main affirmative action is race-based. And as we know, it primarily benefits uh, black and Hispanic and Native American applicants in the American university system. Why it benefits Hispanic applicants in particular is an interesting area of discussion because uh, with affirmative action and African-Americans, there is a Long-standing and ongoing discussion debate over whether there needs to be there needed to be uh, a legal regime to undo the legal wrongs done to the black community in this country for centuries. There was never a legal regime against the Latino community in this country. It does not exist. It has never existed. Certainly, nothing even approaching what the black community was put through in this country's history. So, why do Latinos benefit from affirmative action here? Why do, in fact, many recent arrivals in this country who face no discrimination, legally speaking, whatsoever. If anything, they face positive discrimination, as in people try to assist them because of their Latino heritage in the school application process. What is the justification for that? And that then takes us to this, which is the role of Asian Americans in this whole saga. Why are they negatively discriminated against in the application process? As I said, the good news is that this will be Taken all the way up, I believe, to the Supreme Court, you will likely have a 5-4 decision. And you may, in fact, have the possibility that Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, in what could be really a one of the most memorable opinions he would ever write, one, one that would be a capstone to his entire career, it might, it might fall upon Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas's shoulders to write the decision that finally says, if you want to stop discriminating on the basis of race... Stop discriminating on the basis of race. Put a nail in the coffin of affirmative action. Justice Thomas would be in a position, perhaps, I'm making a prediction here, but to write that opinion or the majority opinion in that case. 
My friends, what happened at Harvard, what happens at Harvard as well as other universities is not particularly complicated. We understand how this game goes. We know what's going on here. There is a belief in diversity as a good, in fact, as an essential good, as a very high goal that must be attained by educational institutions. So important, in fact, that other considerations are easily pushed aside because they can't matter nearly as much. They can't be anywhere in the same stratosphere of importance as making sure that they have the core mission of the university now of diversity is achieved. Well, okay, if we want diversity so badly, why don't we just have a quota system? Decide what the percentage based on census data population of the United States is for different groups. And then we just say, okay, if, if the country is, uh, you know, 12% African-American and uh, 30% Latino and, uh, you know, 20 or 15%, I don't know what the numbers are, so don't quote me on any of this, but, and then whatever percentage white, and that's what the incoming class would be. No, no, you can't do that. That's not allowed. Having a quota system by race is illegal because it's too explicit. And also part of the magic of what these universities do is they confer by creating this brand. We're talking about the elite schools now. They create this brand that they can then confer on whomever attends. But if people realize that they were really only competing against segments of the population and not the population at large, it wouldn't seem quite as quite as impressive in some cases. For example, if you were, if there were a strict quota system and less than 1% of the country is Native American and you got into Harvard as a Native American, like Elizabeth Warren, who became a professor at Harvard because she was Native American, or, or so she said, everybody would know under a quota system that you had only been competing against less than 1% of the country. That's far less impressive to most people, I would think, than finding out that you just got into the most elite university in the world and beat out the tens of thousands of applicants that want to go to Harvard every year. And those are already pre-selected. Those are already people that think they have a shot of getting in usually. There are some reaches, but usually it's the top of the class all across the country. Every valedictorian in the country is like, I want to go to Harvard. So you beat all of them? Or did you only beat the 1% of Native American applicants that applied in your year? That's one of the reasons why the quota system would bother the left so much because they don't want people to know that there's a separate tracking system for applicants from different ethnic groups. Okay, and also the law says you can't have quotas because that it's just too strong of a, um, it, what it would mean is that you are, there's a single determining factor that would override others in college admissions. So what the universities have done is to say, we take a quote, holistic approach. Oh, race is one among many factors. And yet year in and year out, all these schools have roughly the same composition of different ethnic groups. So what it really turns into and what it has been for a long time is a dishonest stealth quota at Harvard, at Yale, at Princeton, at Stanford, at Duke, at you name it, at Amherst, where I went to school, a stealth quota. They won't be honest about it, but it's there anyway. You know, the numbers reflect that. Well, at, Har at Harvard specifically, Asian-American students who were being denied under this holistic, holistic process had had enough because they recognized that in particular black and Latino students who were applying with 
uh, much lesser SAT scores and lower grades were getting in ahead of them. And so they sued to see if they were being discriminated against. And what they found was that Harvard was consistently, you could say systematically, ranking the personality appeal. And this is really a slap in the face. The personality appeal of Asian American applicants or just Asian applicants in general, it's not necessarily American, just Asian applicants uh, as being lower than other applicants. And therefore they get to give the, give the nod, give the wave for a yes to black students, Hispanic students, and you, you name it, whoever they want. And now we get into this big fight over, oh, but you know, what about affirmative action for white kids, also known as legacy? Well, legacy is a fine, that's a financial issue. The big donors that are the major supporters of these universities, which is where most of the money comes from, it doesn't really come from tuition, it comes from people writing checks. The check writers are the legacy folks. So there's a dollar. Now you could say that you don't like that. There's a, but it's not racial. If you're, if you are a legacy and you're a minority and your parents are more likely to write checks as a result, you also get legacy. Legacy is race neutral. Although it does disproportionately benefit white students. It is not entirely for white students. The holistic race as a factor in admissions approach is just an open door for these colleges and universities to engage in all kinds of manipulation and behind the scenes engineering to have the class be as diverse as they want it to be. Diversity is the goal. And when, when I read through some of this federal judge in this uh, lawsuit, Allison Burroughs, who rejected the plaintiff's argument, she said the university met the strict constitutional standard for considering race in its admissions process. I mean, she's just an ideologue. It's a joke. Everybody who works in college admissions knows that it's harder to get in if you're an Asian than if you're black or Hispanic based on grades and numbers at elite schools. Everybody knows it. So if that's not discrimination, what is discrimination? Oh, but how do they get around that? It's all about achieving diversity. What's so fascinating to me about the whole achieving diversity mantra is that it's treated as though that's a, an end goal and there's a, there are educational benefits from that in and of itself. Where's the empirical evidence of that? What, are you going to get a better education at Harvard based on the class being – and how, how diverse is diverse enough? I mean when you really dig into this, and where do these educational benefits show themselves and in what ways? I mean if I went to a class at Harvard that was 20% minority, does that mean that I'm not going to get as good an education if I went to a class that was 30% minority? Is that what diversity really means? It's about diverse perspectives. Well, if it's about diverse perspectives, why are we assuming that skin color translate to, translates to perspective change? That's problematic in and of itself, isn't it? But who says diversity makes for a better school or a better educational environment? And what qualifies as diversity? Now, keep in mind, there is no chance that a school like Harvard would be 100% white or 100% Asian or just based on the other objective criteria, grades and, and sports and or you know, merit-based criteria, I should say, grades and sports and SATs. They've already eliminated racial preferences in the California state system. And you know what? They still have a lot of diversity in the California state schools. They have a lot of Asians at University of California at Berkeley and UCLA, but 
There are still black and Hispanic students all across the California school system. But at the most elite schools, there was a slight drop in numbers, something along the lines of, you know, instead of uh, black and Hispanic students say, and again, I'm spitballing the numbers, so do not take these. But instead of it being, you know, 10 or 15% at, at Berkeley or at UCLA, it's probably more like, uh, you know, 5 or 7% or something. So it drops a bit. But then you also have greater attendance at the more middle rung schools in terms of academic achievement from those uh, from those minority groups who also get better grades and have better job outcomes in many cases because they're not in an academic environment that they are not able to keep up with. And this was told to me, I, I was at a speech by Ward Connolly, who was very involved in getting this system changed. Um, I was at a speech where he discussed this and went through all the numbers and California eliminated racial preference. And it did not mean that they eliminated all uh, all minority students except for Asians and whites from the California school system. Of course, that did not happen. So when we say diversity is a goal, I'm, a, yeah, you know, it would be weird if you didn't have anybody from certain large segments of the American population in a school system like that. That that would seem strange, but that's never going to be the case. So what do they do? They say, well, no, we need diversity, and therefore we get to determine what the right number is. What's the right amount of diversity? And they just leave it up in the air. The problem with that is they're discriminating on the basis of race, folks. They're looking at an Asian kid and they're saying, we know you've worked really hard. We know you've gotten amazing grades. But this individual whose parents are you know, immigrants from Central America, we just we prefer that to you. And even though their grades and their SATs are lower, we're going to take that individual over you. Because diversity. I mean, aren't Asians a part of diversity, by the way? They're a, a small minority of the U.S. population. So why should they be discriminated against in this process? The, the gymnastics that uh, this, this uh, judge went through, um, I, I know exactly. She's a, she's a social justice leftist. I mean, it's obvious that when you read parts of the decision, she has been brainwashed into diversity is a good that cannot be allowed to be uh, trampled upon by considerations like equal protection under the law. That's where she comes down on this. Of course, Harvard's president said the quote, the power of American education stems from a devotion to learning from our differences, affirming that promise will make our colleges and our society stronger still. Um, I, I don't, I don't think that that statement makes really much sense, or I don't know that that's really true. The power of American higher education, that's quite a statement. The power of American higher education comes from a devotion to learning from our differences. This being said on college campuses where conservatives are chased away, chased off campus, told they are not allowed, told they are not wanted. I find that all very deeply hypocritical is it about diversity of perspectives or diversity of skin color and does the left really want to tell us do they want to be clear that diverse skin color means diverse perspective because that opens up a whole other conversation uh, this is not the end of this my friends this will continue to make its way up through the courts and there's a very important principle that is at stake here you do not look at a person's skin color. You do not look at a person's 
racial or ethnic origin and make any determinations about that person whatsoever, nor do you treat them differently, positively or negatively, based upon that difference in racial or ethnic origin. That's it. We either accept that as an equal protection under the law principle or we don't. They can use all the flowery rhetoric about diversity and multiculturalism and diversifying our campus and educational attainment goals and all this stuff. Doesn't change that. I think it's going to come from the pen of Justice Thomas himself. I hope so. At the Supreme Court. If you want to stop discriminating on the basis of race, as Alito wrote years ago, stop discriminating on the basis of race. Hey team, just a quick breather here to uh, tell you that we really do hope that you will continue to spread the podcast around as you now no doubt have figured out if you've been listening for a few days. Uh, we're getting our podcast, The Buck Sexton Show, up on iTunes and wherever you listen to podcasts at 3 Eastern or earlier every day. Sometimes it goes on one platform faster than another, but we're getting it up by 3 Eastern every day. So lunchtime on the West Coast, drive time on the East Coast, you can listen to The Buck Sexton Show Please do spread the word. Post the links that I share on Facebook and, and Twitter to your own Facebook page. Tell other folks to listen. Let's grow Team Buck. Let's make this project of an earlier podcast uh, as big a success as possible. I need you all to, to help me out with this. I, I'm so humbled by your uh, spreading the word so far. But please, please, we got to push now. We need a lot of momentum going into the election year. Share that podcast of The Buck Saxon Show it's up every day at 3 East. Got a special treat for you today on the show, team. Uh, my friend and author Jarrett Stepman is with us now. He's got a fantastic new book out, just out now, The War on History, The Conspiracy to Rewrite America's Past. Jarrett Stepman, welcome to Freedom Hut. First time. Yes, thank you very much. All right, my friend. Tell me, uh, I, I get some idea of what this is about based on the title, but uh, walk, walk us through a little bit of how, how the left is waging a war on history. Yeah, I think that the, the left, especially in the last few years, has been uh, waging a war on history. I think you saw recently with the New York Times had the 1619 project where they kind of decided that they would reframe American history and say that our country was essentially founded on slavery and things like this. My book is kind of, I would say, a counter narrative to that. I, I, I root America's history from the beginning, starting with Christopher Columbus making my way through the founders and really give a defense uh, to what really has been happening over the last few years with the, the attacks on uh, statues, American figures, which, of course, started with the low-hanging fruit of the, the Confederate statues and very quickly moved on to Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and a lot of the men who ultimately made this country great from the beginning. What are some of the uh, what are some of the areas that you think, uh, you know, right, right now, obviously, there's a lot of focus on the Confederate statue issue, and, and that's gotten a tremendous amount of news coverage in the last couple of years. Uh, but who who is next? I'm always wondering about that. What are the areas we're going to see this war expand into? You know, it's well, a big one that certainly will be coming up uh, on Columbus Day this year. Christopher Columbus has absolutely been a target, you know, especially uh, we're talking in New York City. There are Columbus statues all over the city. Some have already been uh, attacked. A lot of people said they wanted to, to take them down. Uh, Mayor de Blasio had a commission to go after Columbus. They say that he's a, a genocidal monster, that, uh, you know, he was, of course, racist, all these things. And I, you know, I go in my book and kind of correct the narrative about history, kind of explain why Christopher Columbus was so celebrated that he wasn't a genocidal monster, uh, that, that, that really the founders celebrated him, and especially many uh, generations of immigrants who came after, especially Italian immigrants, 
uh, saw him as a a model of of uh, you know what America should be. You know this kind of bold adventure. I mean, we put a man on the moon. I think that spirit of Columbus is in us. And you know, look, this attacks on Columbus have been happening for a while, but they've been certainly ramping up in, in the last few years. Where you know the idea of Columbus Day for many is seen as hateful, and that's very that flips uh, what America is on its head. And I think that generations of Americans want to celebrate him. Uh, especially for the hard left today, he's a man who now has to be castigated because ultimately uh, he was the one who planned the seeds of what would become ultimately America. And when you when you look into the the arguments around, for example, the the founding fathers, I I just I wonder the the people that believe in in uh, getting getting rid of and and removing certain statues or putting things. Uh, why shouldn't if we take them at their word, then why shouldn't they also want to uh, not just remove statues? I mean, change the name of Washington, D.C. I mean, is is there an acceptance on the left that there's just there are some things that are too integral to our past to successfully erase? Or do you think the eventual goal here is to have a true reckoning where the founding fathers, anybody who, for example, uh, owns slaves, will be treated very differently when we look at we look back at our at our national history, well, yeah, there's there's absolutely no limiting principle here, and I think that's the real problem. And I think that's why you know when I I saw you know a lot of these tax on on Confederacy and the Confederate statues, which you know fair enough, it was very obvious to me that this would quickly move on to anybody else and anybody who doesn't uh, stand for exactly what modern social justice lawyers believe is absolutely true. I, I do wonder, you know, in a few years, you know, President Barack Obama was initially against. Uh, the idea of gay marriage, you know, how long until we have to start tearing down any, uh, you know, recognition of uh, Barack Obama? I mean, obviously the modern left won't do that, but under their own ideas, uh, you know, he's beyond the pale. And I think that's how they're treating all of history at this point. They think that we can start over anew. We're going to embrace radical ideas like socialism uh, in the far left and kind of cleanse America of its isms uh, and all these terrible things. And uh, that's just that's a, that's ripe for destruction in this country. You know, be destroying the domestic cords of memory that have tied us to the great individuals and ideas that have ultimately made this country great, uh, for ultimately from day one. And how do they deal with I mean, the same social justice left that clearly has all kinds of problems with uh, different, not just statues, but the elevation of different parts of of our history. What where do they stand on say you know Che Guevara T-shirts and Stalin memorabilia, hammer and sickle flags, things like that. Does that ever get the treatment too, or not really? Well, not at all. It's it's funny you you bring that up, especially at the end the protest that we had from uh, former NFL quarterback Colin Kaepernick, who attacked American police brutality and America's racist country. Went after the Bessie Ross flag of all things. Actually, wore a T-shirt with uh, Fidel Castro on it. I mean, and, and we're talking about a regime that. It was incredibly violent. I mean, police brutality doesn't even the beginning of it. I mean, if you question the regime, you can be put in uh, basically a a gulag uh, and not to mention a very racist regime. So the double standards are incredible. And I think for a lot of these people, I think their agenda really is they they want America to become a socialist country. And they they want us to not know what socialism stands for and and the evils that it has uh, uh, perpetrated on this world and make Americans believe that it's their own country, it's their own ideas that stem from the Declaration that have been uh, protected by the Constitution, that those are, in fact, the bad things in this world. And I think, unfortunately, for a lot of young Americans who don't know a lot of history and don't know these things, uh, that's a very appealing thing for them because they just don't know any better. 
We're speaking to my friend Jarrett Stepman. He's the author of The War on History, The Conspiracy to Rewrite, uh, Rewrite America's Past. I, I highly recommend it to all of you. The book's already selling very well, and everyone I know who's been diving into it has uh, the, only the best things to say about it. It's a very important topic right now, and I do like that you've got Columbus Day coming up. You know, I, I always think it's funny, though, Jarrett, because there's also... Uh, there are there are outer limits to the left's wokeness on history. The moment that real dollars and cents get involved, uh, my my favorite example is the renaming of Calhoun Dormitory at Yale University, right? Because because Calhoun right, is, is kind of connection to the to uh, uh, segregate. I mean, sorry, secessionist South uh, and slaveholders in the South. Uh, but the reality of Elihu Yale is that he was in fact a slave trader. The guy that the college or the university rather is named for. He was a slave trader. And yet Yale, I don't think, will change its name. I don't think they'll give up their multi-billion dollar brand uh, by changing the name of the university. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of it's a lot of cowardice on their part and cravenness and appealing to these mobs essentially. I think there are a lot of liberals who are at these universities who know better. They know that this kind of attack on history are absurd, but they're so afraid to stand up to the mob. They're so afraid of the social justice lawyers. They just kind of back down and throw him a bone. They throw him a bone. They say, well, we'll get rid of that guy because you're really mad about this and we don't want to get in trouble and we don't want to get into hot water. And to me, that's cowardice. I mean, you know, they should know better than that. I mean, these Ivy League schools, they should be defenders of the American tradition. Uh, You know, they have a lot to account for because I think this country is losing a lot of those traditions. And we can pin the blame on on our elite institutions. I think regular Americans get this. But our elite institutions in this country, you know, the idea of, you know, patriotic Americanism is just, uh, it's almost like cancer to them. And, and that, is, that is the stem of these problems. And tell me about the, the war on patriotism itself, as you describe it in the book. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote a lot about Theodore Roosevelt in particular. Of course, one of his statues is under attack again in, in New York City. I think very sadly they call him an imperialist and things like that. And I think the legacy of Theodore Roosevelt in his, his speeches about especially immigration and about patriotic assimilation, which were so critical and important. Here was a man who was a part of the American elite at that time. He took it very seriously to carry on the American tradition to teach newcomers about what it was like to be Americans. He had this famous speech and denounced the idea of a hyphenated Americanism, while at the same time uh, deploring things like nativism. You know, American America does welcome newcomers, newcomers who want to be Americans, and he was he emphasized that. I think that's how Americans have integrated new people over time. Our schools today, they do the exact opposite of that. They're trying to unassimilate Americans. They're trying to teach Americans that that uh, that their country is a bad, wretched place. That even if you know they've seen many good things in their life and they've seen this as a land of opportunity, they shouldn't see it that way. They should see. Uh, they should instead have grievance instead of thankfulness to be, you know, part of uh, the greatest nation on earth, which for many, their parents understood that, their parents who were immigrants who came to this country, but their schools are teaching them the opposite. And I think that's incredibly pernicious, and I think will strike at the very heart of what this republic is. How do you arm people in the book when they're going to argue with people over this? Because you know how it goes. They say, oh, I'm sorry, you think that we should have big statues of Confederate generals up there who are fighting for slavery, and they back people into a corner on this stuff. How, how do you in the book try to equip people so that they can, if not win the argument over not erasing or destroying parts of history or rewriting parts of history, at least being able to, uh, to stand their ground on it and not feel like, yeah, you're right, let's just change the name of Washington, D.C. to, you know, Middle Swampland. 
Well, I, I'm sure there are a lot of Americans who would like to abolish Washington, D.C. for for other reasons and Correct. probably some good ones. But I, I think there is I, I dig into a lot of the details, especially about the specific statues that are under attack. And I think there's been a lot of attack that, you know, some people say that, well, these, these things are based nothing in but racism and things like that. And I, I go into the actual history of why these things existed. I mean, even some of you know, the Confederate statues have a very complicated history. And unfortunately, for many of those who want to go on the attack, they kind of rely on, you know, ignorance of that history. Like, you know, for instance, the Silent Sam statue uh, down in North Carolina, which was there as a tribute to those who had died in the Civil War. Uh, and and the, there was a peace statue to the, to, uh, to the young uh, Southerners who had died in the Civil War in Atlanta that was attacked and destroyed. You know, these things were meant as tributes to those who ha- had died and, and the, the pain that those communities felt. Uh, not necessarily the celebration of the Confederacy or things like this. So, uh, unfortunately, those kind of nuances are lost on a lot of these radicals who simply just see any kind of statue and and want to you know throw pain at it or want to stomp on it. So, so having this information, uh, very specifically, you know, that I lay out in my book, uh, I, I think is very useful in in defending. Look, I mean, are we going to eliminate racism in America because we've demolished a few statues? I think there's a lot of politicians who use that. Uh, to cover up the own failings of their governance uh, and the failings that they've, they've had for certain communities. You know, for instance, in, in cities like Baltimore, where they have this effort to topple statues, you know, maybe deal with the, the crushing poverty in the city, maybe deal with the high crime. Uh, this is a red herring to, to distract people and to try to, to get them involved in identity politics rather than solving the real issues that their communities face. So, to me, the, the attacks on the statues, they do nothing good. I mean, in the long run, they do nothing good except for generate grievance. And I think we should respect history even if, even if we disagree with it and think that the people being celebrated were wrong and incorrect. I think that is an important thing to understand as well. So ultimately in this d- debate, uh, you know, it really isn't always just specifically about the statues. That's a larger principle that, you know, we want to learn and, and, and understand American history and celebrate the genuine triumphs. The War on History, The Conspiracy to Rewrite America's Past. Jared Stepman is the author. By the way, Jared, great book cover, by the way. You know, really good job. Thank on you that very too. much. I think they did a great job with it. Yeah, they really did. And a great book from what everyone's telling me. I've got my copy, so I'll be reading and I'll give you my full offline review, which I'm sure will be fantastic. But everyone, go check out Jared's book. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it wherever fine books are sold. Jared, good luck, my friend. And uh, give Inez my best, and we'll talk soon. I certainly will. Thank you very much. All right, team, we'll be right back. But doesn't that, I mean, play into certainly the hands of, you know, his, what I don't know how many Twitter followers he has. I think it's in the range of 60 million who say, well, look, okay, now they're now, you know, the the rich folks in Silicon Valley are just trying to cut out silence me and taking me off Twitter. I'm sure that that will that will be said. But we have to also agree that when the president of the United States speaks, her words are very powerful and should be used in a way that is not about belittling, much less harming anyone. And this president has, I think, never fully appreciated that responsibility. And so what we see continuously, including in the last 24 hours, is a use of his words, Donald Trump using his words, in a way that could subject someone to harm. And if he's not going to exercise self-restraint, then Perhaps there should be other mechanisms in place to make sure that his, har- his words do not, in fact, harm anyone. And that's my point. What we want to make sure is that his words do not actually result in harm to anyone. And that's why Kamala Harris, 
tweeted out that Trump should be suspended from Twitter. That's right. She wants the president of the United States to be suspended from Twitter. Oh, this reminds me of how the uh, Biden campaign, it came out. There was a story over the weekend. The Biden campaign uh, was sending out to all the different lib friendly media outlets a don't, you know, don't have Trump surrogates on your shows to talk about the Hunter Biden stuff. You know, don't, don't allow it. Don't have anybody on to spread that filth around, right? That's my friends. Get ready because we've now finally come to grips with the fact the media is broken. There are no journalists really anymore. I mean, there's very few of them. All of the major media outlets. Uh, and look, I really do. I really believe this. I mean, I, I think Fox is the only major cable news channel that makes that makes an attempt. It makes an attempt. It is right leaning, but it makes an attempt to be fair and balanced. I will say it. The other channels are just it's just lunacy. It's just left wing fantasy land stuff. It really is. And you're going to see a lot of fighting over exactly what Kamala Harris just kicked up here, which is the deplatforming of conservatives, most notably the deplatforming of Donald Trump and his surrogates by social media platforms um, and by these private companies that have an outsized effect on our opinion. It's even more pernicious. It's even more dangerous, dare I say, dangerous to our democracy than what we've seen in other in other eras where the left just had dominance on various platforms, dominance on uh, TV news, because at least then you knew what you were watching with the various social media outlets. The belief is that they're neutral. That started to change now because, for example, people listen to this and other shows where we make a point of explaining what the bias really is and how intense the bias is. But Get ready for them to leverage this. You know, Google and Facebook have far more influence on what people think of these candidates and what they think is going on in the country than any mainstream news outlet does. And you'll note that Facebook recently turned down Josh Hawley's effort to have a third party auditor come in and look at what they do when it comes to political bias. Um, You know, Facebook is coming under fire from Elizabeth Warren on socialist grounds, but on content grounds, they can always be sure on the left that these Silicon Valley giants will be on their side. But Elizabeth Warren, by the way, had some thoughts on rich people. I wanted to get this in. Play three. You know, the way I see it is I get it. There are going to be rich people and there are going to be not rich people, also known as poor people, right? And middle class people and hardworking people. And I get it, that rich people may have more shoes than you have. They may have more cars than you have. Shoot, they may have more houses than you have. But they should not have a bigger share of this democracy than you have. They should not have a bigger share of this democracy. (laughs) Oh, my. Who is going to vote for this person? Apparently a lot of people on the left. If that's not enough, here's her back in 2012 when asked if she had anything that showed her Native American heritage. Just play this one real quick. Play four. I asked Warren if she had anything in the house that reflects her Native American heritage. I have plenty of pictures. They're not for you. Oh, the imaginary pictures, huh? Not not for the press, though. The ones that prove her Native American heritage that doesn't exist? Yeah, I guess she kept those kept those pictures really hidden. All right, team, before we hit roll call, we have our friend Tiana Lowe back in the house. She is a commentary writer for the Washington 
Examiner. She covers all the things and all the places that you need to hear about, including vaping. Tiana, great to have you back. Thank you for having me. So this is an area that I, I just, it's become an interest of mine. Like, what is going on? Why is the country in these these fits of fear over, look, it's, it's a tragedy when anyone dies unnecessarily, but we're talking about a small handful of people who have died. I, I just did a, a quick Google survey today. Wisconsin mom busted in her son's massive vape cartridge operation in the New York Post. Texas A&M to ban vaping on every inch of its campuses. First vaping-related death reported in New Jersey. Uh, the scourge of vaping. Why are people so freaked out? And do we know more about why the people that have died uh, did, did in fact die? So my theory of bipartisanship is that the only time both political parties are willing to lay down arms to unite in a force is to spend our money or ban things that everybody likes. Right now, enemy number one is vaping because of these. It's about 16 deaths in total, which, again, compared to literally any other health crisis in the country, it's infinitesimal. So the reason why people are dying it is not because of any legal vaping products. It's because of black market THC-laced uh, vape pods. So in this case, you know, the use of the term e-cigarette almost isn't even correct because it's not the nicotine that's killing anyone. It's the idea that these, these THC pods have been laced with, uh, like, carcinogens. And yet, somehow... Uh, Democrats and Republicans, you know, you have Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib and President Trump, both trying to crack down on the legal vaping industry. It is a moral panic. Um, and, you know, we already know prohibition doesn't work and it just makes these things more dangerous. So, I mean, right now, the, the, the fear mongering over this is completely unfounded. If you go buy your jewel and your jewel pod from 7-Eleven, you will not die. It's kind of stunning because there's so much there's been so much media coverage of this. And I suppose it's all because the, the assumption we're supposed to make is, OK, maybe, uh, as you pointed out, a very small number of people when we're talking about a health crisis. Right. I mean, you know, more more people have probably died in the last year from the, the Hanta virus than have died from this. I mean, these are things that are that are very rare statistically. Um, and yet you look at this and you say, OK, well, maybe it's because a lot of people have gotten into vaping. And if there is something uh, this is just the beginning of like this is the the beginning of the wave that's going to come of all these people dying from it. But wouldn't it be a better idea to stop and say, hold on, if we're going to push people away from the legal vaping products to more black market products, and if black market products are what's causing people to die, the moral panic may actually lead to more people making dangerous decisions. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's fairly obvious that that there will be unintended consequences and it will only get more dangerous, especially when you consider the thing about vaping is that the uptick in the total numbers in small part, in small part, does have to do with teenagers who never smoked before vaping for the first time. Mind you, this uptick is in teenagers who have vaped at least once in the past month. This is not about daily usage. But in large part, the uptick in, in the number of people who vape, it's ex-cigarette smokers. And I mean, as much as we may be focusing on these 16 deaths, we have to remember cigarette smoking is a habit that kills half of all of its lifelong users. So if people can turn to legal and safe vaping products, that's markedly better. Now, nicotine is not meant to be consumed by people who are still um, undergoing brain development. It's why it is important that we do 
regulate vaping products that way they aren't in the hands of children or um, anyone under the age of 18. But for adults, there's no reason to make it more difficult for them to access vaping products. And this will probably wind up having a regressive effect because in lower income areas, that's where um, it's a lot easier and cheaper to get flavored vape pods because they're, pro- they're proliferated in more mass market distributors such as 7-Elevens, such as gas stations, as opposed to wealthier and more urban areas where there are a number where there are more suppliers and more small businesses applying these products. It's just out of curiosity, so I, have you ever have you ever tried an e-cigarette? I actually haven't. I've never tried one. Yeah, you know, I was the first generation of high school students who had access to e-cigarettes. Um, I had a friend who had a vanilla latte flavored e-cigarette. I smoked it a couple of times. It was kind of just like portable hookah, which was fun. And, uh, you know, I am not a nicotine addict. I I do not smoke cigarettes, and I rarely vape now. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Out of pure defiance for this nanny state insanity, I did go stock up on jewel pods. Uh, But, you know, it's really more for the irony than anything. Just wondering if you have a take, uh, Tiana. We were talking before on the show about the affirmative action decision that just came down from a federal judge. It has to do with Harvard discriminating against Asians. I know you have some... Asian heritage in your background. What do you think of it? So I was lucky because on my college application, I'm just white enough that I could still put down that I was white primarily. But no, it, it is it is absolute insanity that in a world where, you know, colleges get sued all the time for other reasons of discrimination, that Harvard, you know, the leading academic institution in the country, has the right to blatantly discriminate against Asian Americans because it's quote, not their intention. And so this is, I mean, this is racism, plain and simple. The fact that when you completely control every other measure, Asian Americans, all things being equal, Asian Americans have to work twice as hard to achieve half as much. I mean, you look at this, the FAT score requirements are just much higher for Asian American students. this This is institutional racism. You know, this is what the left likes to harp on all the time. And this is what it is. You know, we're seeing this on a smaller level in New York City with Bill de Blasio's war on the specialized high schools like Stuyvesant and Brooklyn Tech. These are schools that disproportionately benefit low-income Asian students. And so this idea that, you know, in order to make sure that we have perfect racial parity, that must come at the cost of actively discriminating against a minority that within the last 100 years has been, you know, under legal discrimination by the federal government. It's just it's just sheer insanity. This is when political correctness does become a weapon. Endorsed. Cosign. I like all that. Well done, Tiana. I'm on board. Tiana Lowe, everybody. Check out her latest at the Washington Examiner, where she's a commentary writer. Also follow her on Twitter. Tiana Lowe. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. Like soft butter on warm toast. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. Yes, it is. It's the Roll Call time, everybody. Woohoo! All right. Let's get to it. Uh, team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. See, we're, we're a big boy show now. We have an email address. Yay, Producer Mark. Yay. Uh, don't give him a big head, everybody. All these cool things happen when he takes over the, the EP role here. And, uh, you know, 
I can't fit my head through the door anymore. Yeah, that's it's tall. a problem. That's yeah, true. So, and I got a giant head too. So I mean, my head is literally big. His head is just getting getting big from all the all the love you're sending his what, way. What hat size are you? My hat size is my head's too damn big, so it can't fit into hats. That's my that's my hat size. Too big. They make eights and nines. Let's try that. Is that even a thing, though? In a fitted hat, I think I've seen an eight. They probably make a nine if you special order it. <sighs> I'm like a seven and five eighths. I do have a big head. Not my head is huge, man. You put the poofy swoop in there, too. You got to stuff the poofy swoop in. And then I get that nerdy thing where the hair like kind of sticks out underneath the brim of the hat, and everyone's like, you look like a doofus. Maybe you just don't wear hats. unless. It's oh, I, I don't. I only wear those hats that like you wear if you were working on a dock somewhere, like an Irish guy loading the docks, you know? Or a in, wool hat in winter, or, or you know, in, over in Liverpool, which is obviously England. Um, yeah, wool hats, like the the big knit ones. Anyway, all right. So we got we got important stuff going on here in in the roll call world, and I'm just going to stop talking about having a giant cranium. It's that's huge. It's enormous. It's like Sputnik. If you want my body, and you think I'm sexy, come on, be. Are you an American axe murderer person? No, I'm not marrying an axe murderer, Buck. Nah, you know what I said. I have no idea. You've never seen the movie, Shall I Marry an Axe Murderer? No, I still think that sounds like Fat Bastard. Every time you do. It's the same, it's the same, that's the same actor doing the same voice. Of course it sounds like Fat Bastard. That's his, he just used that Scottish thing to become a, you know, a bajillionaire basically. So anyway. It's all, all his characters sound the same. Good, good stuff. All right, Pablo, uh, Pablo writes, and this is in the facebook.com slash Buck Sexton side. Hey, Buck, I caught a bit of the so-called press conference with Nancy and Adam. They're trying to spin what a sad time it is impeaching a president. Uh, How they take no joy in this process. This after almost three years of them screaming for the very thing that saddens them. I just want to say I have been in agreement with you about how to treat the left. No apologies. No benefit of the doubt. Just throw facts at their emotional argument. P.S. Hashtag yoga pants. Uh, Well, Pablo, uh, very astute. Very astute message today, although I don't really know what the yoga pants thing's all about, but thank you for writing in. Alex writes, question for the show. Do you see the big donors on Wall Street reportedly ditching the Dems if Warren is the candidate as a potential problem for the Trump camp? I'm worried her anti-Wall Street rhetoric might resonate with a large demographic and her populism could take Trump's to task. You know, Alex, the real answer is nobody knows. I mean, Elizabeth Warren, I think she is... A, a highly mediocre politician. I think she's a third tier academic and intellectual, but she she's um, a political survivor. I mean, she stuck through the most humiliating, unforced error in politics I've seen in a very long time with the rollout of her DNA test. And no one was asking for it. She's just like, oh, look at what I have. One 1,024th Native American. And everyone's supposed to say, yeah. Great job. Hi, I'm in Delaware. Yeah, no, it really what didn't make any sense. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know, though. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in crazy times right now, politically. No one can really tell you much of anything about what the future's going to be. Adam, Buck, I'll let you decide if you want to read this on air. Whoops. Um, uh, well, there we go. Um, thank you, Adam. I will I will not read that one on air, but I appreciate it. Heads up, my man. Everything is good. Everything's taken care of. Rock and roll. Thank you for your uh, consideration. Valerie 
I've downloaded the Pluto app and I'm patiently waiting for your show. I know it will be bucktastic. Well, thank you, Valerie. I hope everybody will download. The Pluto app is totally free, no subscription, no nothing. And we're setting up a channel that's all just, it's just f- free speech channel, free speech perspective, talking about things that should be talked about. That's the way it is going to go. So please do check it out. Uh, we'll be, um, I think we'll be on air with it by October 15th was the last that I was told. So is that right, Producer Mark? They you hear t- more than I do. Oh, yeah. Well, I have to go across the room now to get to the mic. I'm sorry. Yeah, I know. I know. We got we to gotta get a better setup for you with the microphone now. You got to like sprint across there all the time. It's no good. Timothy writes, Buck Shields High. You are from NYC and you aren't familiar with hockey? Hang your head in shame, sir. New York Rangers are an original six team. Most states in the upper Midwest claim hockey as their favorite sport. Go Wings. What the heck? Producer Mark, what is an original six team? Oh, my. Really? Yeah, really. The original six teams of the NHL, the Rangers, the Bruins, the Maple Leafs, the Red Wings, the Blackhawks, and the uh, Canadians. Wow, guys. I had no idea. You had no idea there was an original six? They go back to the 1920s. It's a good thing you got a hockey fan in here. Oy vey. I know. I had nothing about that. We're going to have to do a, we'll do a, a whole thing when we, when, when producer a hockey Buck deep and, dive? Producer Mark, rather, and Buck do a hockey, well, we got to go to a game. I'll get the tickets. All right. Know, and we'll go to a hockey game. You're going to hate game. me tomorrow when I walk in with a hockey jersey. I'm going to the game tomorrow, opening night. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Uh, you're a Rangers fan, right? I not, am. not Islanders. Oh, God, right? no. I'm a Rangers fan. Islanders are for Long Island, right? Yeah. But Long, I'm from Queens. Long Island has its own team. That's they kind do. Of, that's kind of funny. They kind of play in Brooklyn now. Uh, they yeah, go back and sense. forth. Well, Brooklyn is kind of Long Island, but that's a whole other geographic well, don't, issue. Don't start that. I'm I from know. Queens. People get mad at me. We get the mean tweets. Yeah. It's true. All right. Let's get back to Eric here for a second. In the Facebook. Hey, Buck. I learn a lot from the books you recommend. Currently uh, listening to Rules for Radicals and just heard him say, remember, once you organize people around something as commonly agreed upon as pollution, then an organized people is on the move. From there, it's a short stop to a short step to political pollution, to Pentagon pollution. End quote. They've done a good job of organizing with climate hysteria. What should you say is our thing? Should we come up with some new commonly agreed upon thing to organize people around? Yeah, I'd like to say the Constitution, freedom, liberty, and decency. That's what we should organize around. That's what we try to do. But Eric, your point is well taken here. The, the climate hysteria is really a very, very much out of the Alinskyite playbook. Get people very upset about an issue. And once they're upset and they're mobilized and they understand what it is to be politically uh, on the move then it's very easy to say, okay, well, since you're already tackling this issue, let's tackle another one. Let's move on to the next issue. All right, here we go. Um, Ariel writes, Buck, I'll be honest. I don't think there's an actual whistleblower. I think there is a coup orchestrated by Adam, between Adam Schiff, certain members of the Democratic Party, the press, the intelligence agencies, and leakers in the administration hell-bent on destroying Trump. In fact, when they do bring forth a whistleblower, I think it'll be a fall guy. Two and two just isn't adding up to four, you know? Anyway, you're awesome. Keep up the good work and have a wonderful day. Well, thank you so much, Ariel. Um, I agree that there's something going on here with the whistleblower that we don't yet know and that we will very much find out. It's just a matter of time um, that this was a deep state left-wing element trying to take down Trump. Uh, But who was involved and what the specifics were, I can't know yet. We just don't have enough information. We just don't know what is really going to come out of this other than it was orchestrated and meant to take down Trump. 
And that's why the Democrats are, they're going all in on it. Even though the transcript is out and people like me are saying, so what? So what? David, next up here. On average, I spend two to three hours in people's homes to get the same number of robocalls and they're sick of it. Isn't there a do not call list anymore? There used to be a $10,000 fine for violating it. Apparently that's not the case because we all get through all the, because we all get through all the time. Uh, let us know how we can cut that down. Yeah, David, I hate robocalls. I got one this morning at 8 a.m. on my landline. I actually have a landline phone, like, you know, an old, uh, a person from a different generation. Um, but that's because I sometimes have to do radio hits and I can't rely on cell reception. Uh, but yeah, robocalls are a scourge. The problem is tracing them and, and finding the people. They're overseas, mostly, running the scams. That's why it's very tough to use the law to defeat them. All right, everybody, that's the show for today. It has been fantastic and amazing. Make sure you subscribe to the Buck Sexton Show on iTunes or the iHeart app or wherever you listen to podcasts. Three Eastern every day. Pluto Show coming soon. Shields high.